27 of the DNC Podcast, Monday edition, bright and early, back at it. How's your morning going, bro? Morning is fantastic. I'm not going to lie, though. I did have a pretty bad headache when I woke up. But again, I got my water with my organic lemon juice in it. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm feeling pretty solid. It, it seems to be like this really great concoction. It's a remedy, man. I don't know. I, I've, I don't obviously understand the full science behind it, but man, it works. How about yourself? I've been trying that actually since you mentioned it a few a few weeks back. I normally have my coffee to start my day, but now I'm trying to like crush two water bottles before the coffee just to get the uh, the water to the brain. And, you know, sometimes when you have a coffee like right away, you get that instant rush, but you, but you also kind of get the jitters as well. It's almost like a, like C4 back of the day when you're in college just trying to get that pump. Um, so Those no, are I, so I bad for you. There. Those C4s so are bad, horrible. So bad, but so good at the same time. It's like, <laughs> uh, that stuff's hilarious, you, man. I, I was, I, I love the no explode in high school. That, oh like my goodness. Two, that was even worse. Like straight, like straight cotton candy. Like the amount of caffeine you're putting into your body is just so unhealthy, but you feel so jacked. Yeah. And the amount of other ingredients that you can't even pronounce that you have no <laughs> idea where they come from or what they are. <laughs> Ca- uh, caffeine's like the best ingredient in that thing. So yeah. Hey, I'm just, I'm just trying to look like the rock, you know, he's buying the XFL. I'm just trying to get the rock body. So if C4 gets me there, look good on the outside, figure out what's going on on the inside, I guess. So what do you think of that? I like I know we never chatted about it last week. I meant I meant to hit you up about it, but I kept forgetting. But it's interesting. I mean, trying to compete with the NFL in the most popular sport in America by far, it's gonna be really interesting. I mean, he's obviously a huge name. He's been successful in almost everything he's done since, you know, the story that he's infamous from from having seven dollars in his pocket not making the NFL, playing in the Canadian Football League, and then just saying, yo, I'm going to I'm gonna go in the WWE and start wrestling. And obviously it started there, but since then he's a star in Hollywood. He is on that show Ballers, and he's like, you know what, I'm actually going to be a baller and, and buy, a, buy a sports league. I mean, there's nothing more more baller than that for sure. Yeah, it, the, I think the thing that you have to look at with this is what is he going to do with it? Are they going to try and make it like an alternative league to the NFL? Or are they going to make this like an entertainment show, right? And so because I feel like the way that The Rock is, he's all about entertainment. I feel like that's kind of the route they're going to go down. So it's interesting because they're really planning to start a season in 2021, which is pretty fast, right? So like this thing's on the verge of bankruptcy. And then The Rock and some investors. So it includes his business partner, Danny Garcia, along with Redbird Capital Partners. So they're the ones that are purchasing the XFL. So they were, the XFL was declaring bankruptcy chapter 11 bankruptcy on April 13th. And so they had really been seeking a buyer for about three months. So I feel like with this purchase, pulling it essentially out of the mud, the rock and this and his partners are going to turn this into something that in my opinion will be not like wrestling, like it's not gonna be like WWE, but I don't feel like it's gonna be like the XFL was this past season. Like I honestly felt like, I know you went to a game, but I felt like it was good for what it was, right? Like it was never gonna compete with the NFL, but for the season it was in, because it wasn't competing during the same season, 
like they the league averaged 1.9 million television viewers per game and nearly generated about 20 million dollars in gross revenue and had they played the full season so there was a 10 game season slated to be played but it got canceled due to the to coronavirus they were projected to make 46 million dollars so which was way way more than what they originally had projected yeah i think the big thing for this is you almost make it like a hybrid between like almost like a last chance you you know, like, I think you almost have to have something like televised with it where there's like a storyline to get like people bought in, like it's more of an entertainment thing. And then I think another thing is, I think you just have a smaller league. Like you can't try to have a 32 man league. I know the originally the XFL wasn't that big, but I think you have a smaller league. And the big thing is it has to be a different time of the year. So it can't be September through December and then a playoffs in January and February. It'd be interesting to see if they could figure out a dynamic where it would almost be like the NBA G League where you could either do a hybrid for like kids straight out of high school. So maybe it's like a specific age age span where it's people like 19 to 22 or it's people who maybe play like lower level division football and they're trying to go to the NFL. I think one of the things Rock said when he bought the merger was I want to be able to help people achieve their dream. And so it seemed almost like he may have it almost be more of like a prospect style league versus competing with the NFL. And I think if he's fine establishing it like that, I think that's been part of the issue of the XFL historically is they're like, oh, we're going to take over the NFL. And it's like, you're not going to do that overnight. Like that's going to take 10 to 15 years. So if they have more of a niche market and they can kind of capitalize on that, people just love watching football. I mean, People watch Mac games on Saturday. You know, people watch Division II football. So I think people love football. So I think if he's smart, he kind of finds that niche market to work within versus saying, hey, we're going to take over the NFL in five years. Yeah, there's no way you're going to ever compete with the NFL. Like even even if over the next 10 to 15 years, there's no way that you're going to be able to capture the market share that the NFL has. I mean, the NFL, not even being a global sport, is the biggest sport in America. So I think what you said is perfect. They're going to have to carve out their niche. And I feel like they were doing a good job of that. Honestly, like it, did you feel like the energy was good when you went to the game live or, and did you feel like the competition was any good or did you feel like you were watching a high school game? Um, I would say (sighs) this is tough. So it wasn't horrible football though. The thing I would say is you could definitely tell like, the athleticism wasn't the same as the NFL, but I even noticed that in college. Like I've gone to college games. I've gone to even like USC games back in the glory days when they had Liner and Reggie Bush. And obviously like Reggie Bush was different, but I feel like college athletes in general, they're not as good as NFL athletes. They're just not. We don't expect them to be. They're not professionals. But the thing about college football is like the environment in college football normally across the board, especially if it's division one high profile program, it's going to be super electric, right? Where when I went to the XFL game, it it kind of seemed like college style football, but more of like a high school atmosphere. So I was sitting in the end zone and there was definitely fans for the home team. They played in the LA Galaxy Stadium. So it was a smaller capacity stadium. So it was it was pretty full, but it wasn't I mean, it, it didn't compare with like Division One college football. It didn't compare with like a big NFL game. I, I would almost consider it like maybe a super high high profile like high school football turnout. Like if you're thinking like maybe like modern days playing like John ba- Boscow in California. But for me, it was like I had nothing to do on a Saturday. So I went to the game and I had free tickets. I don't know if I would have purchased tickets to the game. Like, like, I, like I don't, you know. 
even if the ticket was five dollars. I don't know if I would drive to LA, sit in traffic for an hour and a half, go through security, all the parking stuff, then have to buy a twenty-five dollar beer. I think I might just go to Costco, get a twelve pack, you know, grill some burgers and some dogs, and just have the TV on the flat screen. Like I don't think the environment was that great, and so that's where the Rock being the media mogul he is he, i think that's where he may find a way to make it a little bit more engaging with fans because or or just switch it up just because for me the football itself wasn't so great that i had to be there live or when you go to a college game normally like it's a tailgating before it's a college environment it's all that type of stuff i don't know if it's california specific but i know you couldn't really tailgate at um that specific stadium i was at and so you kind of lose that aspect of it, you know? So, well, speaking of college football, so recently, as of yesterday, there was a meeting held for the Power Five conferences. And when you're talking about the Power Five conferences, you're talking about the ACC, the Big 12, the Pac 12, and the SEC. Um, and, you know, so I think with, with this whole meeting that went down and, and what they discussed was whether or not to play this fall for the college football season due to the coronavirus pandemic. And a lot of the feedback coming out of this meeting was that people weren't optimistic, that they felt like it was inevitable that the season was going to get canceled and they were going to try to move it to the spring. And to be honest with you, my opinion on this is pretty strong. I'm just going to stick in the lane of talking sports I don't see – you're obviously seeing guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields who are going to be the probably the one and two pick in the NFL draft lead the way saying that they wanted to play, right? And I think at this point, you're pretty close to the season starting. A lot of these, a lot of these conferences are going to be starting in the next month. And to decide to move the season to the spring, you're going to lose a lot of your big name talents. So like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields are more than likely, if you were to move the season to the spring, you're more than likely going to lose them. Every draft eligible player that was going to go to the draft is not going to play because they're not going to play in February, March, April, and possibly get injured or be exhausted. They're going to, they're going to, you know, work on their draft status. You already seen what four or five players opt out very high profile players, probably all first round draft picks. You move the spring, you move this lead to the spring, you're going to lose anywhere from, I'd say 50 to 150 prospects easy. Right. Right. So the way that I look at this is if you're looking at, so you have the ACC, the big 12, the PAC 12 and the SEC. And, you know, I, I think about these conferences and I don't feel like any of them don't want to play. Like, so through through this meeting, there was a couple different things that were discussed, and what they said was so. This was a Power Five coach. They did not say who the coach was, but they said, "quote Nobody wanted to be the first to do it, and now nobody will want to be the last." Right? And ultimately, I think what you'll end up seeing is that there's going to be too much pull from the players, and if they can't pull this off. Like I said, these these big name guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields will 100% opt out, and you're going to essentially waste time playing the college football season because nobody's really probably going to watch that. And 
the NBA should be rolling at that time, right? Because they're probably going to have a later start. So they'll probably start in December. So you're going to be kind of in the middle of the NBA season. And um, I, I just don't I, I just don't see how, how that happens. Like you have the SEC, the Pac-12, the Big 12, the Big 10, the ACC. And it's like all of those conferences have teams that could potentially vie for a college football playoff spot. And, and if, if I think the SEC is going to be the last conference to opt out, but it's a hundred percent. The PAC 12 is like the one probably pushing for it. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it. And it's like, it's kind of due to just like, what's been hard with everything going on is it's not consistent state to state. So like for the PAC 12, I was reading something about it. And like, if you're a PAC 12 team in California, you actually can't practice right now. So if like you're Oregon or you're Washington, you can be practicing where Cal, Stanford, USC, UCLA, they can't practice. And from everything I was researching, the PAC 12 kind of said, Hey, like, sorry, not sorry. Like there's nothing we can do about it. So you have to figure it out. But to your point, like no one in the SEC wants to do it. The, the whole thing to me is like this whole idea of like, hey, I don't want to be the first or the last to do it. Like, just stop. We're not in like junior high. I remember with like baseball and, and the NBA, it was like which league was going to start. And baseball didn't want to be the first to do it because if something fell through, they didn't want to look bad. Not only did the NBA do it first and look better, they've done it more consistently. They've been better than the MLB. To me, it's like everyone – all the leagues are getting back, so I don't I don't see at this point even like why it needs to be a story because MLB's playing, and yeah, they're having to cancel series every once in a while, but they, they're going to finish out the season, right? There's going to be a World Series champion. We know football's going to come back. It's almost like college football's trying to create this narrative when it seems like we don't really need to at this point, but I, I really don't see this happening. Um, I don't see the Pac-12 being the only school opting out. I think what probably happens is the Big Ten – the SEC, they carry so much weight. I don't. I don't think all the conferences carry equal weight. I think when you look at like the revenue share um, and the fan numbers, I'd be absolutely shocked if if they end up canceling the season or pushing it to spring. Because at that point, if you're going to push sports till spring, for a lot of the smaller Power Five schools, to your point, they're just going to lose revenue at that point. It's not going to make sense from a financial standpoint to have a football season when you have all these stars opt out, and so. I think we're still going to have football in fall, and I'm excited, man. Yeah, and another Power 5 administrator said, quote, it feels like no one wants to, but it's reaching the point where someone is going to have to. Like, I don't get that statement. It's like, so you collectively agree that it's inevitable, but then you kind of collectively agree that nobody wants to really cancel the season or postpone it to the spring, yet you have to? Like, why do you have to? It would be one thing if there were no leagues playing right now, but you have Major League Baseball, you have the NBA, you have the NHL. So you have three major sports playing. I don't understand why college football feels the need to cancel, but who knows? I, again, it's not my decision. I'm not an administrator of a power five conference, but if I was, I would be lobbying and pushing for the season to begin, but we're going to get into the pick of the day. And, you know, I think this one's really interesting for me because it just happened. And to be honest with you, I have to back this guy up because He's he's had a great career. And this past this past weekend, the Trailblazers lost to the Clippers and they were leading really late in the game. Damian Lillard was fouled and was going to the line late in the fourth quarter to basically take the lead with two free throws, and he missed them both. And Dame's like an 89% free throw shooter. So it's very rare that he misses, let alone misses both free throws. And then you had you had 
Patrick Beverly, of all people, on the bench, clowning my guy Dame Time, Damian Lillard, for missing both free throws. And again, eventually the Blazers went on to lose that game. And when I think about Paul George and Patrick Beverly, who are the two that were involved in this little incident, Paul George, as you've mentioned, is the king of getting having buzzer beaters hit in his face. And he's going to laugh at Damian Lillard. And I look at Paul George's career, and he was in the East with the Pacers, and they had a couple solid runs where they went to the Eastern Conference Finals and played LeBron's Heat, but couldn't get to the Finals. And then he goes to OKC, plays with Westbrook. They have a solid regular season run for two years, but they don't do anything in the playoffs. They obviously got sent home last year by the Blazers in the opening round. and. It's just really ironic that a guy that hasn't won anything in his career, and not that Dame's obviously he has they haven't won a championship. They've never been to the finals. They obviously went to the Western Conference Finals last year against the Golden State Warriors, but I just had to I had to back up my guy. I just I really don't see where, especially a guy like Patrick Beverly, who is really a journeyman player, and then finally found a spot on the Clippers where he's a starting point guard because of his savviness as a defender, but He's not a guy that if you're starting a team, you go, that's the point guard that I want. And so it's just interesting to me when you have an all-star, a face of a franchise, a superstar player, miss two free throws. He's human. He's not perfect. And then you have a guy like Patrick Beverly, who let's just be, again, let's just be real. You wouldn't even bat an eye if you were picking between the two point guards. And so there's the disrespect towards a guy like Damian Lillard, who I feel like for the most part, is a guy that has been really honoring and respectful throughout his career. Like he, I haven't really seen him be outspoken about any sort of player in a disrespectful manner. Um, I know he does the little wave thing when he sent Paul George home, but to be honest, I think he's one of the well, he's one of the model citizens of the NBA. So I think it's I think it's trash to be honest that that Pat Bev and Paul George would would do this. However, it, it's also enticing because. If they meet in the playoffs, that could be very interesting. I think the Paul George scenario is funny because when you look at Paul George's like career trajectory, right? He's in Indiana. He's the face of the franchise. He's the best player on a team. And then since that time, he's basically taken a backup role everywhere he went. He was Robin on the Thunder. And then you're not going to tell me the Clippers are his team. They're Kawhi's team. And so it's funny when you look at the scenario where he basically made a business decision. Hey, I don't want to be the number one option on a team. I'm specifically going to places where I can have less of a role. And then you're clapping back at Dame Lillard, who is obviously the alpha on that team. I think one of the different things about Dame versus any other superstar is Dame's made it very clear, I'm not going to join anybody else. And whether that makes sense or not, Dame's come out and said like, yo, I want to win in Oakland. And whether I win or whether I don't win, I either want to attract people here or I want to win organically, but I'm not going to go and sign up and win an easy chip um, like you know multiple people did during that run in Golden State, right? And so... I really respect that about Dame. For me, though, I I love the drama just because I feel like the NBA right now is so buddy-buddy. Like, there's so many players that are fake buddy-buddy. And the fact that, like, I think the difference between Dame and a lot of people is, like, Patrick Bev does that type of stuff. Most people, like, they don't clap back. And Dame always claps back. Like, the rivalry between him and Russell Westbrook is absolutely hilarious. We're like, 
Russ is one of those like fake tough guys where he always like carries a baby when he drives and it's like, all right, cool. You made one layup. You shot, you know, three for 18 in the game. Like cool with the baby. And Dame just like always claps back. But no, I think Dame's great. I think Dame's one of like the few actual like real guys in the NBA where so many guys are like all smoke. And Dame's like, no, bro, I want this smoke. Um, but my pick of the day is Draymond Green, who my, my relationship with Draymond Green has been kind of rocky. But I would say like Draymond Green now, like I actually really like Draymond Green now because I feel like he's just like real and authentic and he just kind of like speaks his mind and He's been on the TNT set during the playoffs and like watching him and Chuck kind of go back and forth to me. Like I, I love it because I feel like with like that, that group with Ernie and Chuck um, and um, oh, the guy, Kenny, the, the jet. And, yeah. Kenny, the jet. Sorry. Sorry, Kenny. Like it's a fun group and I feel like they're kind of like this cool kids club. And so whenever there's a guest, you're almost like the third will and Draymond just feels like so natural um, up there. Like, there was a there was something with Chuck where he was talking about like teams who like leave a guy open and like it kind of seemed like he was taking a shot at Draymond Green, but it wasn't like abundantly clear. And Draymond just calls him out on live TV. He's like, "Bro, you taking a shot?" Like I love how he's just like, "Yo, I'm I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm gonna do that." The funny thing was obviously Devin Booker's been going off these playoffs. We talked about it multiple times. And Draymond, I think a you know a week or two ago was like, "Yo, get my man out of Phoenix." Gets gets uh, gets fined fifty thousand dollars for tampering, which to me it's like he's not really trying to get them on Golden State, but the fact that he gets fined for that, like I feel like the league has to do it because it's in their rule mandate. But for me, it's been awesome seeing him on there. I think his transformation, where when he first got to Golden State, he definitely had a chip on his shoulder, and you get that coming from Michigan State, not really being a high profile prospect, right? But he's really developed. He's had a great career. I think he's really grown up a lot, and I, I've loved seeing him on TNT. How do you call that tampering, though? He literally was just making a statement. He didn't say, hey, Devin, you need to come to Golden State and team up with us. I think the end, Ernie said, yo, are you are you tampering? And I think he had a comment. He's like, well, I mean, I wouldn't hate to have him in Golden State. I feel like Ernie almost cost him 50K. And when you're Draymond, though, and you have that max deal, you can't really be like, yo, Ernie, hook it up. But I feel like if Ernie wouldn't have made that little comment towards the end, like, hey, are you trying to get him to Golden State? And he's like, I want to I want to hate it. I feel like that right there is the reason he had to pay 50K. But here's my problem is that when you have current players go on shows like that, so like pregame and postgame shows, especially when you're with Shaq and Chuck and Kenny the Jet, and I know he filled in with, for Shaq, but – the thing that to me, I'm, I'm like, why can't the league have something in place to protect the player, right? Like they're, they're just trying to be entertainment. They're trying to be a comedic relief on this show. So I, I don't understand why the NBA couldn't say, hey, like I understand you were just kind of in the moment and you're trying to be funny on a television show. He wasn't like actively pursuing him on Twitter or having phone conversations behind the scenes. And maybe he has, I don't know. But I'm just saying with this particular incident, I think it's trash that he's getting fined $50,000 for this incident. And I don't even like Draymond Green, to be honest with you. I know you said that you like him. I, I can't stand Draymond Green. He's the guy that, from just a basketball standpoint, if he's on your team, you love him. But otherwise, you can't stand the guy. Because the audacity that he had to say that him and Steph changed the game is just absolutely asinine. Like, Draymond Green... Confidence, baby. Yeah, I don't care. I mean, but Draymond Green is a solid player. But if he goes to Memphis when he gets drafted, we probably he might be a backup right now. Who knows? I don't know. But 
I know he's a former defensive player of the year, so I know it sounds like I'm putting a bunch of disrespect on his name. I'm just saying, I think he's a solid player. I don't think he's like a star, but. Oh, no, I think he's a guy that has completely maximized like the opportunity he's been given. And so you look at the situation he's in. No, I think he'd probably even admit not on national television, but I think down DP knows like the situation for me in Golden State, like I'm in the absolute perfect fit for me with what I have to do with what I can do to my ability. And I think it makes him you know, a star in that system. But I I think there's a lot of people that situation is so important. I feel like for most people, unless you have the God-given ability of a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant, like your situation is really, really important. Well, coming up on the podcast today, we're going to dive into the race for the eight seed in the West. We're also going to talk about the best player in basketball that no one seems to be talking about and the end of the year NBA awards. So starting with the Western Conference, it's been wild. Going into the bubble, it seemed like Memphis was pretty locked in for the eight seed with Portland hot off the trail, and then out of Phoenix come the Suns. So right now it's looking like there's going to be a really good chance that there's going to be a one-game playoff between the Phoenix Suns and the Portland Trailblazers. The biggest question mark is, which one of those teams is the worst matchup for L.A.? So I think it's the Portland Trailblazers, no doubt. And here's why. Who's guarding CJ and Dame on the Lakers? Who's guarding them? You don't this is where losing a guy like Avery Bradley is gonna prove to be a huge loss for the Lakers in this playoff run. Because even though Deion Waiters and J.R. Smith can inconsistently, but when they are on, they can be a solid offensive scoring threat. But outside of that, they're both defensive liabilities. And now you have a guy like Yusuf Nurkic back. You have Melo this time around. So they went to the Western Conference Finals last year without Nurkic and without Melo. This year, they have both of those guys. Nurkic, to me, was the missing piece. So he's an offensive... He, to, he provides an offensive element that they didn't have last year. So a lot of it was shouldered on Dame and CJ. But... With Yusuf Nurkic, he can give you 15 and 10 every single night. And defensively, I think he's very underrated. Then you look at a guy like Carmelo Anthony, who I feel like fits his role perfectly, and he's hitting stride right now. So it's it looks like, of course, he's not going to be the mellow of old. But the thing with Carmelo right now is, I mentioned this last show, is that he's able to do what he does best, and that's score the basketball. He doesn't have to worry about putting the team on his back, shouldering the load. He has two other guys, maybe three other guys with Nurkic to do that for him. And I think it creates a mismatch for him because you obviously back in earlier in his career, you could double him. You now can't double him, of course, because then you're leaving Dame or CJ or Nurkic open. And so I think it's a perfect fit for him. I think he's going to be somebody that down the line will prove to be really, really useful and vital to the success of the Portland Trailblazers. And I know a lot of people have been down on them this year because, of course, they're the ninth seed currently. It looks like they're going to get a chance if, unless the Phoenix Suns make a late push. And I know that they're 5-0 in the bubble right now, so they could. But it, to me, it seems like Portland's going to be the team that gets in. And I know collectively most people feel like they've underachieved this year coming off of the Western Conference Finals bid last year and not even being in the playoff picture for the majority of this season and now getting a chance due to the bubble to get it to get in. And I feel like if they can just get in, they're going to be a problem. And I know you think, okay, well, who's going to guard LeBron and who's going to guard AD? 
Now, of course, both of those guys are going to get theirs. There's no doubt. But again, with, with Anthony Davis, what we've seen even in the bubble is he's had really, really good nights and he's had some pretty bad nights. And I don't know if you're going to get that AD in the playoffs. You would, you would like to think you're not, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say that AD is going to be AD that we know, a top five player in the league. And you have LeBron who's still playing at an MVP level 17 years in. And I just feel like outside of that, as long as you can keep them to, let's say they both drop 30 each, so you're talking 60 or maybe it's 70 points, then there's a pretty big drop-off with the Lakers in terms of who's going to provide the offensive production. And, of course, there can be nights where guys score in spats where it's, again, JR or it's Dion Waiters or maybe you have guys like Danny Green go off one night. But ultimately, I just feel like Portland is kind of the perfect storm in terms of the matchup for the Lakers. No, I 100% agree. If you're the Lakers, you're praying that the Suns get in because besides Devin Booker, there's no one you have to worry about. I mean, you just key on from him. You limit his three-pointers. You make him drive. Portland's the worst matchup for the Lakers for a number of reasons. Number one, at the point guard position, they have nobody that can stick with Dame. Even when they were healthy this year and they had A.V. Bradley, in three games against the Lakers, Dame dropped 48, 31, and 29. Right, Portland as a team, they shoot 38 from threes. They shoot a lot of threes and they make a lot of threes. But I think the biggest part that's going to be an issue for the Lakers is the Lakers have dominated with size this whole season. They've out-rebounded almost every single team. They've had JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard inside, along with Anthony Davis, Kyle Kuzma, LeBron James. So they've been so good in their front court. But when you look at Portland, especially with everybody healthy now, they have a really good front court. And so... There's no shoe-in that the Lakers are going to win the game on the offensive boards and on the defensive board, and so they really have to minimize the errors, and at least in the bubble, it's been something they've struggled against. For me, the biggest question mark is what happens when LeBron sits, or is he just not going to sit? I mean, if you're a Lakers fan, the one thing you have to have going for you that gives you a little bit of hope is LeBron's had three months to rest, and so he's as fresh as he's ever been for the playoffs. But he's going to have to go like 42 minutes a night because the Lakers plus and minus this season, they're plus 11 with LeBron on the court. I think they're minus three with him off the court. And so a lot of games we've seen this year, even when AD's on there without LeBron, AD's always been a really good statistical player, but he hasn't always won at a high level. I mean, we watched him throughout his career in New Orleans. I think he had one year where they made the playoffs or had a playoff run, but a lot of it was 29, 15, and 5 a night, but you weren't always winning those games. The Lakers have struggled when just AD's been on the court. They've been okay when AD's been off and LeBron's been there, and then obviously when they've been a duo together, they've been almost unstoppable, but I think the Portland series is going to be really tough. I think Probably three or four months ago, people would have overlooked it and said, you know, Lakers in four, but there's a really good chance this could be a six or seven game series. The other thing that we have to think about is there's no home court. So we're playing at the bubble, right? There's there's no home court. Sometimes, whether I don't think refs mean it or not, you you I think you do get a little bit more calls at home. There's a little bit more doubt with with turning over calls. I think we've seen there's a few plays I remember seeing with the Thunder, not the Thunder, Golden State a few years back where players would like step out of bounds, but there would be so much going on with the crowd noise that you you wouldn't always see all those little things where when you look at it now, everything's going to be over the microscope. The number of cameras in Orlando 
I think is twice the amount versus like a normal NBA game. So everything's going to be under the microscope. And so it's you're basically playing in an empty gym. And I think in the playoffs, especially in a tight series, that's going to play a really, really big factor. It's really going to be the best teams going to win because you lose all those other things that you normally have to your advantage. Yeah, because the thing about the Suns, right? They're really fun. It's been a great storyline to watch throughout the bubble. Devin Booker's played immaculate. I mean, you, you really couldn't have asked for more from your star. But the thing is, is they just don't know how to win, right? And that's not, those aren't my words. Devin Booker even admitted this recently that they're a young squad. And being young, there comes the ups and downs, the roller coaster of the NBA season, the roller coaster of your play. And so I think that if this team can, of course, stay together, that's going to be the question is, are they going to keep Devin or be able to keep Devin Booker long term? Or is he going to want out because they're just not competitive? I don't know. I don't know if he has the heart of Damian Lillard where he's like, I want to stay here and I want to win here. But I just think right now they're too young. Like I said, it's been amazing to watch. You you always pull for the underdog, the Davids versus Goliath. But I just think when you're looking at this this roster, even with DeAndre Ayton, I mean, he's a nice piece. He's still super young, hasn't fully developed yet. And Ricky Rubio is okay as a point guard. And they've got some nice little fun pieces. But ultimately, Portland would, of course, be the nightmare matchup. Like you said, they're, they're praying that the Suns get in. Because if the Suns can get in, that's going to be a pretty – I would say relatively easy series for the Lakers, but if Portland gets in, I'm just saying, I know that this is going to sound like a hot take. It's so not because I really genuinely want the Lakers to advance because I want to see LeBron in the finals again. However, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't expect it, but I would not be surprised if Portland upsets them. So it seems like in life, we always want the next thing to happen, right? We're never satisfied with what's going on in the moment. We're always looking over our shoulder for what's coming next. For years, it seems like there's been countless players that we've compared and thought maybe the next LeBron James. There's been Jabari Parker, RJ Barrett, even Zion Williamson. The list goes on and on. However, I think there's a guy right now who could be, who's very close to being the next LeBron James, and it's someone nobody's talking about. That's Luka Doncic. The guy's averaging 29, 10, and 9 in only his second season in the NBA. LeBron this season in an MVP in an MVP season is averaging 25, 8, and 10. But yet nobody's talking about Luka. You have a guy like Tatum from Boston who is having a career year. He's averaging 23, 7, and 3. Doesn't have nearly the burden on offense that a guy like Luka does playing with just Przingis. You have Kimba Walker. You have Jalen Brown. You have Gordon Haywood. You have Marcus Smart. A very deep bench in Boston, but yet everybody's saying Tatum's on the verge of being a top five player in the league. Why is our boy Luka getting no love in the NBA? I don't get it, and it's extremely frustrating. Because he's not the likely superstar. He doesn't look, we said this yesterday to each other, we were talking about the show. And if you saw him on the street and you didn't watch basketball, you'd be like, that guy's probably like a social media influencer, or maybe that's like a party guy. Like maybe he's going to the club or he's going to the bars on Friday nights. Maybe he's playing for a, for a low level professional team in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. Like a, a team that nobody watches, nobody cares about because outside of Europe, nobody cares about European basketball. So the thing is, is that 
he's not the guy that they want to be the face of the league, but he should be, right? They're trying to mold Zion to be that guy. But Luke is that guy because we've never seen anything like him at this young of an age. I know people are like, oh, well, what about LeBron? And again, I'm not saying that he's LeBron. Dustin's not saying he's LeBron. But I think with all the guys that they've tried to compare to LeBron, Zion, Andrew Wiggins, Jabari Parker, I mean, the list goes on prior even to those guys. And I look at Luka, and I'm like, he really resembles LeBron the most. He obviously doesn't have LeBron's physical ability and his athleticism. But the way that Luka can shoot at 21 is far better than LeBron was. His three balls better than LeBron. His passing ability is either as good as LeBron's, if not better at, the, at 21. Again, the only thing LeBron, in my opinion, at 21, if you're comparing the same age, is that LeBron was physically imposing because he's 6'9", 270, 8% body fat. I mean, he's just really a specimen. And LeBron, and you said this about Luka. Like, he looks like he has baby fat still, right? Like, he doesn't... He doesn't look impressive physically, but for whatever reason, when he's on the basketball court, even last year as a rookie without Porzingis, you were like, that guy's different. There's something about him that is telling me that my eyes aren't, my eyes are witnessing greatness unfold. And that's what I think we're seeing with Luca. Like in my opinion, this is going to sound like a hot take and maybe it is, but I think Luca right now is a top five to seven player in the NBA. There's very few guys that I would take over Luca because he can hurt you in so many different facets. And he's proven that in the bubble. There's three guys on my list I take ahead of him. It's LeBron, Durant, and Kawhi, just because of right now how developed they are. But I was literally trying to think. I'm like, all right, is Luca top five? And I'm like, oh, that seems like a hot take. And then I literally pulled up every NBA roster and I couldn't find five guys that I would take a ahead I'm telling of him. I think the other thing about him is like there's certain guys and like I love James Harden, but there's certain times where you'll watch the Rockets play and you can tell or even Rajon Rondo in his prime. People said like you could tell Rajon Rondo purposely passed to get an assist like he was stat hunting where Luka is just making the best basketball play and he gets 35, 19 assists and 14 rebounds like he's just playing good basketball he's just so talented at everything and I think what's really amazing about what he's doing is like we mentioned about LeBron LeBron's just a freak like he's the best athlete arguably in the last 30 years and 100% Luca like obviously he's a good athlete he's in the NBA but everything he's doing is off of skill so it's like something he had to learn, something he had to train on, something he had to develop. And not saying LeBron didn't have to do those things as well, but LeBron also has that it thing that some people are just born with and some people aren't. And if you're not born with it, like you just don't have that, right? And if you're born with it, lucky you because you're you're going to be a star. So for Luca to be this good, all based on skill, to me is like the guy's 21. It's absolutely crazy. Like. There's been no learning curve. That's the thing with most NBA players, like even with Jason Tatum, people are like, okay, he has the potential to be really, 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 really good. And we've given him time. I think the moment Lucas stepped on the court last year, it was like, people don't view him the same way this year as they did last year, of course, because he was a rookie. 
but he's already an MVP candidate in year two. It's like there's no learning curve for this guy. He stepped on the court was like, yeah, this is easy for me. No, for sure. And you look at it, it's like you look at the team and like, yeah, they have Przingis. And although Przingis, I think, has like a lot of potential, you look at his size, his length, his shooting ability, like he w- didn't win games by himself in New York. I think Przingis is a really good fit with him, but I wouldn't say like Przingis is like a superstar. And so I feel like Przingis is a sexy name. He was a top pick in New York. People are like, <laughs> you know, people are like, oh, well, you have Przingis. So like you have like, your running mate and you know yes they are running mates but so much of that is Luca and then you look at the rest of the roster and they have Trey Burke they have Tim Hardaway Jr and they have nice pieces but let's not act Seth like Curry. let's not act like this Dallas Maverick team is stacked like he's a superstar and this other role players it's kind of like Dirk back in the day like you know Dirk was a superstar and then they had you know a lot of other people that came in who who were really good role players but the fact that in the Western Conference, you know, they're playing this well in his second season. Like, we talk about Devin Booker, and he struggled to make the playoffs his whole career. Like, this may be the one chance he makes it, and it's strictly because of the bubble format and a possible playing game. Right. Where when you look at the Mavericks, I would say they're a slightly better team, but I wouldn't go so far out to say they're so much better than the Suns, where if you put Luka on Phoenix, they probably make the playoffs. Where I love Devin Booker as a scorer, but I don't know if you put him on on Dallas if they're necessarily a playoff team because Luka just impacts the game in so many ways. And that's where it's like he's so LeBron-esque because what's so crazy about LeBron is LeBron's always top five in the NBA for scoring every year, but nobody talks about LeBron as a scorer because he does so many other things. Where That's how I look at Luka, and that's where I'm like, dude, I think he's arrived. I think he's the next superstar to be the face of the league because, like we mentioned, he's averaging 29 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists, top 10 in scoring, but nobody talks about his scoring ability because, number one, it's so effortless, and number two, he impacts the game so much besides his scoring. It's absolutely crazy. Like, like the guy's going to be an all-time great. In his second year, it's like – he stays healthy. He's going to be a top 10 player in the history of the league. Five to seven years ago with that stat line, you win the MVP. That's, you're almost averaging a triple-double in your second year. And I think what you pointed out was really, really important. And I thought it was great. Porz, the best thing that ever happened to Chris Stapps Porzingis was him going to Denver. Because him staying in New York, he was going to be the face of the franchise. He was the guy. And he was an all-star in 2018. So again, he was a guy that was showing, hey, I can be a star in this league. I didn't ever think he was going to be a superstar, but he could be a star. Paul George was a star for the majority of his career. Some would maybe argue now he's a superstar. I don't feel that way. I still feel like he's a star, which is, again, of course, great. However, when you look at Porzingis and you look at Luka, without Luka, the Mavs are obviously not a playoff team. With Luka, they're, of course, a playoff team in the West. And I know that they're only the seventh seed, but still, really outside of those two guys, it's a pretty big drop-off, right? I know Seth Curry, Tim Hardaway Jr., you have Trey Burke. Different guys like that are, are solid little complimentary pieces, but again, they're not helping you get to the playoffs, right? Luka Doncic is pretty much single-handedly carrying a franchise at 21, which is remarkable. It's absolutely incredible. And I think it's great for the Mavs because you go from a guy like Dirk Nowitzki to Luka Doncic, so you're passing the torch to another European player. I think he's going to end up being better than Dirk. I think he's at his age better, of course, than Dirk was at 21, but there's just... Other than maybe defensively, 
he's going to improve and get better at that. But it's like offensively right now, it's going to continue to get more polished. I, I just, I mean, to average almost a triple double and in that triple double, you're almost averaging 30 points. I mean, it's, it's so remarkable. Like I feel like people try to find holes in his game to not allow the greatness of who he is and his talent and his skill set to rise to the top. And I don't know why. Again, I don't know if it's because he's a European player because Dirk was never the face of the league. He was always considered a superstar, but he was never the face of the league. You guys like Kobe Bryant in the mix, of course, and then LeBron. So with Luka, I just, when you look at the talent, there's a lot of great young talent, but like you mentioned, when you think about my take, which is he's a top five to seven player in the NBA right now, you're like, whoa, hold the phone. Second year, you're already saying he's top five. And you go and look at it like you did, and you're like, man, there really isn't five other guys you would take over Luka. It's it's really remarkable. But I also want to talk about the NBA draft in that 2018 NBA draft where Luka Doncic got traded from Atlanta to the Mavericks for Trey Young. And we wanted to talk about in that draft, which team regrets at this stage, now knowing what we know about Luka, who regrets losing Luka the most? So initially I was thinking, you know, Phoenix, they had the first pick, right? But then I was like, okay, I'm going to look at the top three teams. So as you're looking at Phoenix, you're looking at the Kings and you're looking at the Hawks. Historically, how have they done as far as like attracting free agents? Because if you can't attract free agents, the draft for you is crucial, right? So you look at the Suns. Historically, they were, they drafted Steve Nash, but then he got traded to the Mavericks, right? But then he goes and re-signs with the Suns, right? They've also signed Grant Hill throughout their career, right? So those are two notable good NBA players, right? You look at the Hawks. They signed Lou Williams, shout out to my boy Magic City, as well as Joe Johnson, right, who had a really good career with them. When you look at the Sacramento Kings, there is never, like there hasn't been, and there will never be a team that says, I'm going to sign with the Sacramento Kings. It's never going to happen. Never. The only way you have a chance of getting a superstar player in Sacramento is to draft him. That's your only chance. No one is ever going to sign there. So when you're the Kings, you take Marvin Badley Jr. from Duke, who, like, come on. The like, third. Com- Not com- Jr. The, the come third. Come on, dude. He wasn't even dominant at Duke. Like, of all the prospects you're going to take from Duke the past five years, Jabari Parker, Zion, RJ Barrett, Jason Tatum, like, that's the guy you take. And then... This is what Luka Doncic turns into? Like, the Sacramento Kings have to be the worst organization in all of sports. Like, not basketball. They have to be the worst organization in all of sports. Like, I was trying to think of, like, football teams. Like, at least the Browns have drafted well. Like, they they maybe haven't put it together on the field, but they've taken good players. Like, they took Miles Garrett. They took... Baker Mayfield, they traded for OBJ like they're trying to make moves. And I'm not the hugest Baker guy, but, you know, they did draft, you know, who they thought was their franchise quarterback, where when you look at that quarterback draft class, like, even if I don't love Baker, I also, I I don't love Sam Darnold. I think Josh Allen, there's still question marks there, but I love the arm strength. And then, you know, my boy Josh Rosen never got a fair shot, but his NFL career is probably done. But Sacramento, it's like, you have to be crying if you're a, like if you're a Kings fan. You have to be so depressed right now. Like, ugh, it's horrible. I, I was I was coming from the same place, right? I started thinking, okay, how what angle do I want to come from with this? Because you think about the franchises that way, right? 
the draft for the small market franchises that can't acquire big marquee free agents, they have to draft extremely well and they have to hit, right? Like with Cleveland, they would never get a guy like LeBron James, only through the draft. So I was thinking about it from that standpoint, but then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go a different route. And the route that I went was, what would Luka do if he was paired with another player? So I still feel like the Phoenix Suns are the biggest losers in this. And the reason why is because you have Devin Booker in the early stages of his prime. So if you get a guy like Luka Doncic and you have a guy like Devin Booker, who is only 23 years old. So when they drafted Luka, of course, two years ago, that would have made Booker 21 and Luka 19. So you would have had two budding superstars, not a superstar and a star, two superstars, okay? I think Devin Booker right now is a top 10 offensive talent. I don't think he's a top 10 player, but I think he's a top 10 offensive talent in the league right now. Then you pair him with a guy like Luka Doncic. The thing that Devin Booker has been missing in Phoenix is a true point guard. Ricky Rubio, I feel like has been the best that he's had because I feel like Ricky Rubio is a selfless player. He's not an offensive talent. He's a great passer. And I think that's what we all saw him becoming when he got drafted by the Timberwolves years back. And I feel like he's made it. He's had a solid NBA career, but he never turned or panned out to be the guy that many people projected him to be. But he, it's hard when you're you're taking two picks before Stephen Curry. It's rough. So so the thing that's crazy to me is that I look at this Suns roster, and of course you got to remove DeAndre Ayton because that's who they took in 2018 with the number one pick. But it's so odd to me that in a league now that's really guard driven. You draft a guy like DeAndre Ayton, number one. And I understand, look, I'm not trying to say that we have hindsight bias because it's easy to say now that you would have taken Luka number one. I understand that. But hear my, hear my argument. Luka, during the 2018 draft or prior to, many people were saying, this guy is unbelievable. Like it wasn't like Porzingis. I knew nothing about Chris Stapp's Porzingis. And I don't think anybody projected Chris Stapps to be the player that he was. It was the one pick. I mean, if you remember back when Porzingis got drafted, like the entire fan base of New York booed extremely hard because they were like, who is this guy? Why would Phil Jackson draft him? And he ended up turning out to be an all-star. So, but with Luka, I don't think people were projecting, hey, this guy's going to be top five, top seven in the league in year two. But they were like, he's the youngest MVP in the European league. He's played in championship games. I believe they won a championship. So he's played, he's played in big time moments for European league, of course. And his skill set and his game was so unique that even if you felt like there's a potential bust here, but the upside is superstar top 10 player, all time hall of famer, first ballot, you got it. You got to roll the dice. And so DeAndre Ayton was never considered to be an elite player. Like they were like, maybe he could be an all-star. Like that would be his absolute ceiling, but there wasn't, there wasn't the wow factor there. But with Luca being paired with Devin Booker, could you imagine like right now, the way the Suns are playing in the bubble, you give them Luka Doncic and then you have Devin Booker. I'm just saying that team for the next 10 years, as long as they stayed together, just attracting some other solid pieces. You're talking about a team that would make a run at a championship for the next decade. Like for real, that's how, that, that's how elite both of those guys are because you're getting, you have two superstars. This is like having Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. 
the crazy thing about Luca is like Luca didn't even have to be what he is now for it to be an absolute home run for Phoenix. Like you look at his exactly. rookie year where he averaged 21 points, eight rebounds, and six assists. And I mean, even the fact that that was his rookie stat line. Like, that's a top 10 stat line right now, 21, 8, and 6. And that was his rookie year. But you look at the pairing. For me, and I've been on the record talking with about With nobody. Him, with nobody. They, nope. I, no, but for me, I've been on the record saying, like, I've I've never really been about building my team around a big man. I think you just look at today's NBA. And so it's so guard-driven. It also really behooves you to have a playmaker who can kind of play the, the, the small forward or power forward position. Because that's what makes Luka so good is – he basically is their de facto point guard, but he's not. He's 6'9", and he plays a small forward position. And so you just add that talent. Like, even if he never would have been a superstar, but he could have been a complimentary piece to Devin Booker with the way the NBA's played now, it just never made sense to not pick him there. Like, I think it's something that Phoenix is going to regret, the Suns are going to regret, and I get Trey Young's a nice piece, but even Atlanta has to regret it. Like you look at Trey Young, and I think I mentioned this to you yesterday. Stephen Curry has had the impact Stephen Curry has had on the NBA the past five years is what we're seeing with Patrick Mahomes right now. And what I mean by that is Patrick Mahomes got Jordan Love drafted. Jordan Love doesn't get drafted in the first round if Patrick Mahomes isn't here. And although I don't think I'm not comparing Trey Young to Jordan Love because Trey Young showed that he could score in the NBA, but you don't draft people five years ago that pulled up from 35 feet out. But that's what happens when you have a guy like Steph Curry who won championships like that. The difference is, although I'm taking nothing away from Stephen Curry because I think he's a generational talent, I think his shooting ability and his shot-making ability is probably the best in the history of the league. He also played in the perfect system with Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, a whole bunch of really good role players, and then he had Kevin Durant for a few years. And so the offensive burden on Stephen Curry is different than, say, an offensive burden of a, even a Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City or LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard was on the Raptors. All Stephen Curry really had to do was make really big shots, but he did in some really big moments, and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's changing the league, which he has to some regard, but he's the reason, you know, we're, we're looking at Trey Young in the light he is today. And although I think Trey Young has a chance to be a really good offensive scorer, there's been a lot of them who have not transcended the game. When you look at what Luka's doing, he's he also pulls up from five feet behind the arc. He also gets an assist through his leg with a minute left in a game. And I mentioned to you, like, the best part about Luka is, like, LeBron does something like that, and you know LeBron did it on purpose for the Instagram pick. Luka just made the best play. He, like, split the defender. He's like, I'm just going to drop a dime pass. Like, he's not even trying to be a show-off. Like, after the play, you see him running back, and all of his teammates are, like, pointing at him, clapping, and he's just, like, jogging back on defense. Like, he doesn't even know he did something spectacular because he's just making the best basketball play. And that's what I love about Luka is in this star-driven league where it's all about ego. It's all about image. It's all about who said what last and who's wearing what sneakers and all this type of stuff. He's just playing basketball at 21 better than almost every single player in the NBA. So speaking of the best players, coaches, staffs in the NBA, Cole and I are going to get into our NBA awards and not necessarily who's going to win the awards, but who we think is most deserving. So we're going to start off with coach of the year. 
I really wanted to give it to Billy Donovan with looking at what Oklahoma City has done this year, but I can't. I can't do it. I have to give it to Nick Nurse because you look at the Raptors situation, the fact that they lost Kawhi Leonard and they didn't really get anybody to place him and they have a better winning percentage than last year. Like, think about that. They have a better winning percentage than last year and they lost their finals MVP, the guy that got all of the credit for winning the finals. And although he was a huge piece, I don't think any of us realized how good the Raptors were because Kawhi did so much for them offensively. Nick Nurse has done such an amazing job with that group. Like there should be no other vote for anybody for coach of the year besides Nick Nurse. Man, I really... I really thought you were going to give my guy Billy Donovan the nod because I feel like Billy Donovan is so deserving of this because if you look at Toronto, and I'm glad you finally admitted that Toronto is a really solid squad because you were hating on them a few episodes back when you said that Kawhi was on a pretty, not a very good team in the finals last year. However, I feel like, first of all, Nick Nurse deserves a ton of credit, right? Because they don't have a superstar. Kyle Lowry is a nice player. Pascal Siakam is... I think turning into a star, but we don't fully know if he's going to be a star. He's a really, really nice player. And again, they've got a, a, a lot of solid pieces. They, they are, to me, the Oakland Athletics of the NBA, right? You're never going to attract a superstar. You're never going to give big money to a superstar. You're just going to have to draft well, get guys that really fit your system that you know other teams aren't necessarily super high on but you're going to get the most out of their talent. And I feel like Toronto and Nick Nurse specifically has done that with this squad. I mean, defensively, they're so elite. Their their confusion that they create offensively for teams is just really, to me, second to anybody in the league. I know everybody says Milwaukee's the best defensive team in the league, and you probably could make a valid argument for that. And I know statistically it supports that. But when I watch the games, Toronto causes so many problems for so many teams. I mean, you saw them cause a lot of problems for LeBron and the Lakers in the bubble a few games back. But when I look when I look at Coach of the Year, right? So I feel I feel like you can make an argument for both Nick Nurse or Billy Donovan. I think your argument is valid, and I think it's great. Mike Boldenhoser, I don't feel like should even be on the list. <laughs> I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Obviously, they've had a great season. When you have one of the best players in the league, you have to take some of the the credit to the coach away, whether it's fair or not, specifically in basketball when one player can dominate so much. Like if you have Giannis, you have LeBron, you have Luka, you have Kawhi, you're going to lose some of those votes because you have so much talent around you. Exactly. Absolutely. So, and again, I'm not saying he's not a great coach. I'm just saying you have you have Giannis. And so it's it's kind of like when... It would be like saying Eric Spolstra is the best coach in basketball when he had Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, and LeBron James. like, Or Steve Kerr when he had Steph, Clay, Draymond, and Katie. Right? It's just it's pretty much a given you're going to have the best record in the league. However, and I'm not taking away from the Bucs. They've been great. But if you look at OKC's roster, here's why I think you should win. Because everybody, everybody thought this team was in rebuild mode. They thought CP3 would get traded either before the season or at the trade deadline because he wanted to play for a contender. He verbally said that. The fact that they're not only competitive, the fact that they're the fifth seed in the West with CP3. And again, CP3's had a great year. Resurgence was an all-star, but he's old, right? Like you don't look at CP3 anymore the way you used to. 
And outside of CP3, I know they have Shy Gilgis Alexander, and I know they have Dennis Schroeder, who's probably going to win the sixth man. And you have Steven Adams. It's like, okay, they have a nice little squad, but not a fifth seed, right? Like, that's what's so impressive with me with the job that he's done because nobody thought that they would even be competitive. They thought they would be at the bottom half, not only of the Western Conference, but of the entire league. And so for that, from that standpoint, when I look at it that way, I just have to give the nod to Billy. I think you made a great argument. I think Nick Nurse has done an incredible job. And I think, truly, I said this last episode, Toronto's going to be in the finals. So you can't go wrong either way. I just think because of the preseason, like everybody thought Toronto was going to be good. They knew that even though they lost Kawhi, I don't think people thought they would be a contender like they are, but they knew they, knew they would be a playoff team. They'd probably be a top three to four seed in the East after losing Kawhi. Nobody thought Oklahoma City was going to do what they've done. I think what's been great to see is Billy Donovan's actually been able to coach. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when you have a Durant or a Westbrook, you can't even completely run your system. I know one of the things Billy did from from Florida is he did so much with ball spacing and getting the ball in so many different people's hands. And then when you had Westbrook for so many years where he was such a ball-dominant point guard, triple-double machine, he couldn't really run what he wanted to run. So it's been awesome to see Billy kind of have the full reins and be able to do – so much with so many different players. It's been really, really fun to watch this year. Getting on to sixth man of the year, because I think we're probably similar on this. Another member of the OKC, um, Dennis Schroeder. So there's a few people kind of in the mix. For me, I think you have to give the nod to Dennis. When you look at it, he's basically having his best career year ever. Now he had one year in Atlanta where he averaged six assists. This year he's averaging 19 points, four assists, and four rebounds. But he's shooting 39% from three. He's playing 30 minutes a night. And he's been one of the biggest reasons Chris Paul has been able to play so well this season because he doesn't have that huge burden because they've somewhat limited his minutes in the in the regular season. They've kind of spot-checked him at times. Dennis Schroeder for that team, not only the stat line, but also being able to keep Chris Paul healthy, take some of the offensive burners on him, and they're the fifth seed in the West. I, I don't see, like, you look at Lou and you look at Montrezl Harrell, and yeah, they've had good roles for the Clippers, but the Clippers would make the playoffs without them. They'd probably be a top four They're seed pro- without either of those four players. I don't know if, you know, Schroeder's so integral to OKC's success. They're not the same team with him because he's so important to what they do offensively where Lou, he's a nice scorer and Montrose will get you get you boards but they're not impacting the Clippers on a game and game game basis the same way Schroeder is. No, you're hundred percent right. We we're hundred percent eye to eye on this. We see it the same way because when you just read his stat line, that's, that's a starting point guard stat line in the NBA. It just is. And he, he has been a starting point guard in this league when he played with Atlanta and even Billy Donovan has said, we know I've told him you're a starting point guard in this league. And the fact that he's accepted his role, knowing that and having your head coach say that to you, it shows the character of who Dennis Schroeder is, which makes me love him even more and want to vouch for him and vote for him as the sixth man of the year. He's just had an incredible year. But now we're going to get into the NBA most improved player. And there was some controversy, quote unquote, when Luka Doncic came out the other day and said that Devontae Graham should be on this list in replacement of himself. But the three finalists are Bam Adebayo, Luka Doncic, and Brandon Ingram. I think a lot of people throughout the year have thought Brandon Ingram was the shoe-in just because of his year from last year to this year and the jump he's made from Los Angeles to New Orleans. And 
being an all-star this year for the first time and really becoming the player that a lot of people projected him to be. Uh, Many people were making the comparison between him and Kevin Durant when he came out of Duke. And I think you're seeing a lot more of the guy that many thought that he would become, which has been amazing to see. However, I feel like Lucas shouldn't be on this list. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Bam Adebayo or Brandon Ingram. But Luka Doncic is not a finalist for the MVP, but he'll get some MVP votes. And so I agree with Luka. Devontae Graham should be on this list. But my pick for most improved, to be honest, would have to be Brandon Ingram. I want to say Bam Adebayo because I love his game and he's had such a great year. But Brandon Ingram was so bad with the Lakers. Like people were riding him off as a bust. So for him to go from what we thought he would become and then what we saw in LA to then what he now is in New Orleans, it's it's such a drastic change that that's how I'm grading that is that to be most improved, I feel like you have to have a huge leap from where you were the year prior to where you are now. And I feel like Brandon Ingram has done that. Yeah, I think for me initially when I looked at the list, I was like, it has to be Brandon Ingram all the way. But then I dug a little bit into the stats because to your point, I remember when he was playing for the Lakers, like the narrative around him was he's just not that great. But I actually looked up his stat line his last season in the Lakers and he averaged 18, 5, and 3. So it's not like he was putting up bad production. I think the fit with LeBron wasn't great. And you could tell LeBron kind of wrote him off. And I think that was part of the narrative around him where, you know, he did jump from 18 points to 23 points a game, which is a, which is a significant jump. But for me, the jump Bam made from last year to this year, where last year he averaged nine points a game, seven rebounds, and two assists a night. He jumps all the way up to 16 points, 10 rebounds, and five assists from the power forward position. I had to give the nod to Bam. I also think right now, and... I well, think, he's playing center, I think, for, for for the large majority of the season, he's playing center. which yeah. is He's an undersized center, which makes it more impressive. Yeah, I think you look at the impact he has for the Heat, and I would say... Besides Jimmy Butler, I think he's the most important piece on that roster. And you could say the same for Ingram, but they have Drew Holiday, they have Zion, they have Lonzo Ball, they have J.J. Redick. Although they're a young squad, they had a lot of pieces there. And so if you're really that caliber of a player, get your team to the West, get your team to the playoffs. Like even an eight seed where you look at Bam and yeah, they have Jimmy Butler and... They have a lot of pieces that now we're saying, oh, we really like how deep Miami was, but nobody thought Miami was going to be this good looking at them preseason. Nobody did. I mean, people thought with a weak Eastern Conference, they'll probably make the playoffs, maybe a six or a seven seed. But like we mentioned on, on last week's pod, I think they're a dark horse finals contender. And, and nobody saw that coming. And a large part of that, I believe, is because of the role Bam makes, not just scoring the ball, not just rebounding the ball, but if you can get five assists from your center, like there's not that many players that can do it. His ability to get a rebound, push it down the court, play in transition, I think it's unique, and I think it's really impressive. I think defensively he gives a great effort where he's not a great initial shot blocker because of his size, but he's a really good um, at recovering, helping with the team down low. So I look at... Not only the impact that he has to the team on a game-in-game basis, but his jumps in stats and production this year, I had to give the nod to to Bam, but I thought it was really close between those two. And to your point earlier, the fact that Luka's on this list is an absolute joke. 
So getting into the defensive player of the year. So I think when you look at the finalists, you have Giannis Antetokounmpo, Anthony Davis, and Rudy Gobert. So Rudy Gobert is with the Jazz, Anthony Davis is with the Lakers, and then of course Giannis is with the Bucks. I think a lot of people have just said, oh, Giannis is going to win that award. He deserves it. He's going to win the MVP. And it made me start thinking about these awards because it's like, okay, people feel like he's the best player in basketball right now. So let's just kind of hand these awards out. But if you really look into it, you look into the stats, and more importantly, you look into the games. I really feel like Anthony Davis should win this award. I don't think he's going to, but I think that he should. The 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 presence that he's provided for the Lakers on the defensive side has really elevated them to the number one seed. Without Anthony Davis, of course, they're not the number one seed. But even if Anthony Davis was just the offensive talent that he is and he wasn't the defensive talent that he is, you're not looking at the Lakers the same way and they're probably not a number one seed and they're definitely not a championship contender. And I feel like because Anthony Davis is so elite defensively that you know that down low, if somebody's getting to the lane, you feel super confident with your ability to stop that guy because of Anthony Davis. I know you could say the same about Giannis, but Anthony Davis, to me, because he's so elite offensively, and I feel like he's arguably a top 10 offensive talent in the NBA, and he's also a top 10 defensive talent, maybe top five. It's really so impressive because to me, I know that everybody's going to disagree with me on this, and that's okay. I don't feel like Giannis is a top 10 offensive talent. I think Giannis is an imposing athletic freak that is just bigger, stronger, faster than everybody else on the court. So he's able to get to the rim a little bit easier than anybody or a lot easier than anybody else. So I'm not taking away from his game, but I feel like he's very one dimensional. You saw Miami pretty much not shut him down, but they slowed him down enough to beat Milwaukee the other night. And they were able to down the stretch, keep Giannis from doing what Giannis does best. And so of course he has more years to develop, but Again, when I look at Giannis's length and size, I would hope that you would be elite defensively. And same with Anthony Davis. But again, when you're elite on both sides of the ball, you have to look at it from this standpoint. Playing elite offensive basketball takes a toll on you. You look at guys like James Harden. For years, people knocked his defensive ability because he's dropping 35-40 a night, giving everything he had on the offensive side to help the Rockets win. And so something has to give. And so the fact that Anthony Davis has maintained both, that's why it's super impressive to me. I don't think he's going to win because like you've mentioned so eloquently that the NBA loves storylines and Giannis being an MVP and a defensive player of the year just sounds really great. But I truly believe that Anthony Davis deserves the the defensive player of the year. I had a whole bunch of notes for this point, but you you said everything so well. I'm just going to go super short. For me, <laughs> I think the biggest thing you said about Anthony Davis, which I don't think many people think about, is he leads the Lakers in scoring, but yet he's their like he's their most important piece defensively. Like you look at a guy like Rudy Gobert, and he's so important to what Utah does defensively. But he really doesn't have a huge role offensively. Like he'll he'll get offensive rebounds, he'll set screens and do like the pick and roll. But they're not running all of their action from him. They don't need twenty six points a night from him. Or from Anthony Davis, not only do the Lakers need twenty six points a night from him and three assists, they also need the two point three blocks and the steal and a half. Like, and it's not just the stats specifically, but it's 
the impact of having Anthony Davis in the lane where when guards drive in, he changes his trajectory, right? When you pair him with, you know, Dwight Howard, he can come back and defend shots. He can switch to people on the perimeter. I mean, he's so athletic for his size. If he gets switched on to a guard, you don't automatically have to switch back because he's so good at laterally moving his feet. I think the fact that he's been so good offensively and yet equally so good defensively, you have to give the nod to him because if he's not on that team, although I still think the Lakers make the playoffs, they're probably a four seed, not a one seed. Now the award everybody wants to talk about is the MVP, right? And it seems like we kind of feel like it should probably be a three-man race between Luka, Giannis, and LeBron, but it's probably realistically a two-man race. And so I was actually looking up, I've always heard of like real plus minus, but I found a new stat called real plus minus wins. And what it does, it takes into account like your plus minus and how many wins you account for. So according to this stat from ESPN, LeBron accounted for 19.99 wins for the Lakers this year. So we'll say 20 wins, right? So if you take 20 wins off the Lakers this year, they win 31 games. That means they're tied with the Phoenix Suns for the possible play-in game for the playoffs. So you take LeBron off that team, statistically it's saying they're going to probably win about 31 games, and right now they're going to be playing for a one-in playoff game. Where you look at Giannis, and you know he accounted for 18 wins, which is great, but in the Eastern Conference, if you take 18 wins off the Bucks, they're the seventh seed. And like we've seen with the Raptors, I think with the way they play in Milwaukee, if you take Giannis off the team, they're probably actually like a five seed or a four seed because although I don't think they're, they have a superstar with them, I do think they do have a decent amount of depth there. So I think the impact LeBron has on the Lakers is arguably as big as any impact he had on any of his Cleveland teams. Like you look at, Obviously, the Heat teams were, were stacked in some regards. You had Ray Allen, you had Dwayne Wade, you had Chris Bosh, you had Mike Miller, you had a whole bunch of people there. You look at his second time in Cleveland, he also he had Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, or Kevin Love wasn't a superstar, but he was a nice piece, and Kyrie Irving was you know, probably a top 5, 10 offensive talent at the time. You look at the Lakers situation, and although he has Anthony Davis, there's a huge drop-off between Anthony Davis and everybody else. We've also seen, we've mentioned multiple times, Anthony Davis has always put up really good stats, but... He was never really a winning player before joining LeBron. And so I think of every year, at least for the past five or 10 years, I think this has been LeBron's most impactful year. And I think his pure dominance and his importance to the Lakers has been on full display since opening night until now. To me, there's no doubt that it should be LeBron. It's not going to be. Again, the NBA loves storylines, which is unfortunate because LeBron has been robbed of so many MVPs just simply because the league got tired of giving LeBron MVPs. That's how I feel genuinely. Because if you go back throughout the course of his career, he should at least have two more MVPs than he currently has. Okay. He has four. He should have six at least. The Derrick Rose MVP over LeBron was probably the biggest botch, I think, in NBA history. Like that was so bad. There is in no universe should Derrick Rose have won that MVP of the year. He won it over LeBron. Like there, there is no case to be made. It was just. Like we mentioned, he was the next face of the league. We want to crown the next guy. Let's give it to him. But yeah, it's, it's, it was weird. Like when Michael played, it was like, oh, we're going to give Michael the MVP every year until somebody earns it. Where with LeBron, it was like, hey, we're tired of giving it to this guy. Yeah, there's no doubt that Derrick Rose should, he earned 
his place in the league during that year. But you're right. He shouldn't have been the MVP. And I love me some Derrick Rose. But again, LeBron was the shoe in that year, in my opinion. However, going back to this year, here's, here's the thing. When you look at the point you made, which is you laid it out so perfectly, that's pretty, pretty point blank in your face, very obvious that you take LeBron off the Lakers, they're not a playoff team, okay? Then I look at it this way. When you look at LeBron James at 35, year 17, in the West now, so he plays his whole career in the East, plays with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he plays with the Miami, or the Miami Heat. Both of those franchises, so Miami won a chip right before he got there, a few years prior actually, with Dwayne Wade and Shaq. Okay, that was the, that was the, the, the franchise's first championship. Cleveland, he goes back to, of course, wins a championship there, first in franchise history. Okay, so both franchises, Miami historically, now they're seen as a historic franchise because Pat Riley, Dwayne Wade, now then they had LeBron, they've had Alonzo Mourning. So they're look they're looked at a lot differently than they were when Dwayne Wade first got there. Okay. The whole time he's in the East, everybody says, well, the only reason they're the number one seed every year or he gets to the finals is because he's in the East and the East is really weak. Then he moves to the West. And I'm now hearing arguments that the West is weaker, that the West is not as good as it used to be, and that it's kind of an off year. It doesn't matter where LeBron goes. It doesn't matter what LeBron does. Everybody finds a hole or they create a hole or a flaw to try to pull this guy down. And let's just let's just face it. I feel like the West, of course, Golden State's not there this year, but the West this year is so deep. It is so incredibly deep. And the fact that a team like Oklahoma City is the fifth seed in the West shows you just how good that conference is. And when you look at the East, it's like you've got Toronto. They don't have a star, but they're a nice team. Are they a playoff team in the West? I don't know. Maybe a seventh, eighth seed. You look at Boston. Boston's a really good squad. They would be a playoff team in the West. You look at Philadelphia, who's largely underperformed this year. I don't know if they're a playoff team in the West. So you look at the Bucks. They're probably the, the biggest surefire pick if you're going to switch a team from the East to the West. So it's like, I look at the East now and I'm like, I feel like it's weaker now than it was when LeBron was coming up with, with the Cavs the first stint. And so I just think it's so disrespectful to a guy that is so great all time, arguably the greatest ever. And it's like, here, here we are again, finding fake flaws, fabricated flaws in a guy that at 35 is carrying a franchise, putting up the numbers that he's putting, leading the league in assists. I, I just, to me, where... Where do you go? Giannis is the, everybody keeps saying Giannis is, he's running away with the award. I don't see it. I don't understand it. Why? Because they have the best record in the league. That shouldn't be a reason why you give a guy an MVP. I'm tired of the NBA having the most valuable player award. They should have the most outstanding player. Like college football has the Heisman and then they also have the most outstanding player award. Okay. Have two different awards because the way that you give the NBA MVP is how you would probably give that. You would give that. So Giannis would probably win most outstanding, but the most valuable. Yeah, of course the Bucks aren't a or they're not a, a finals contender without Giannis, but they're still a playoff team. The Lakers are not only not the one seed. They're not only not a contender. They're not even a playoff team without LeBron. And at the age, you have to take all those things into account. So anyway, I'm just lobbying super hard for LeBron because I feel like he's been so disrespected for the last four to five years. 
Um, but I, I think he should win it. He's not going to, but I still think he should. We're going to get into the last one, which is the NBA Rookie of the Year. This is the easiest one of all. It's John Morant. There's no question. Everybody kept trying to make it seem like Zion was going to run away with this thing towards the end if he had the chance to play in the bubble and play high minutes, which the volume of minutes, that's a whole different discussion, ended up not being what people expected, and they thought they'd make a chance. They'd get a chance to make a run at the playoffs and get in. They obviously got eliminated yesterday. Um, I think Zion, look, Zion's great. I think he's going to be great. But for this year, John Morant absolutely deserves. Nobody thought Memphis was going to be a playoff team. I don't think there's going to be. They should have gotten in. They've just looked really bad in the bubble. Losing Jaron Jackson Jr. has obviously not helped their case. But if you're just talking about individual performance, John Morant has burst on the scene and never looked back. Yeah, you have to get with John. I think strictly for the fact that he's played almost every game this year. When you look at Zion, the number of games he played were so limited, right? Even when he comes back to the bubble, um, he doesn't really impact them winning. Like, yeah, he had some impressive stat lines, and I get some of that wasn't on him with the minutes restriction, but almost every win this year that Memphis has had, you attribute it to Jaw. Like, if he's not on that team, they're probably a top three pick in the draft this year. And the fact that Memphis was even in playoff consideration, like, no one would have thought that. Like, no one would have thought this year Memphis, for the majority of the season, is going to have a better run than the Phoenix Suns. Because if this bubble doesn't happen, right, and we just finish the season with the way all these teams are playing, Memphis probably did make the eight seed. Because I think there is something where a team like Memphis was rolling. Like, the one thing they did was they kind of got on a roll and they were able to keep that going, where when you're a young squad, you have a rookie leading the way, you take a four-month hiatus it's going to be hard to come back and have that playoff intensity when you've never made the playoffs before. You've never had a full season before, but I think you look at the impact he had on a gaming game basis. Although I love Zion, I think long-term we'll still see who's a better of the two players this year. No doubt, no question. Jaw has to win rookie of the year. That's going to wrap things up for episode 27 of the DNC podcast. Again, thank you for tuning in each and every week. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and family, get it out there, let people know that this is the greatest new show on the planet. And I know we're biased, but I feel like it is. Uh, Follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at the Dustin and Cole podcast. Be sure to drop in our direct messages. Let us know different topic ideas you might have, questions, things you want us to discuss on the show. We'll be sure to do so and shout you out. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you guys Friday.